there is a very common word often used that nowhere appears in the Word of God. It's a word that is used quite frequently in most people's vocabulary, but yet not utilized at all in the scriptures. That word is luck or lucky. There is no such thing as luck in a biblical concept. We must learn to replace the concept of luck in our minds with the concept of God's providence. We are to see that God is at work and behind all of life's circumstances. This morning, we're going to learn that Josephat was not simply lucky and that his life was spared, and that Ahab ran into not bad luck, but was experiencing the judgment and providence of God. It's God in his sovereignty working to bring to pass his will and fulfilling all that his word says that he will do. So this morning, we want to take a closer look at God's providence at work in the circumstances of Jehoshaphat and Ahab's lives. First, we note Jehoshaphat's visit to King Ahab. Verse 1 of chapter 22, for three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now, Jehoshaphat was a good king. According to 1 Kings 22:43, it says that he walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. So the scripture has much good to say about Jehoshaphat. However, he was not a perfect king, for that same verse goes on to say, yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. So there was room for improvement, but overall, he was a good and godly king. The relationship to Jehoshaphat and Ahab was a bit complicated. Jehoshaphat had made a marriage alliance with Ahab, 2 Chronicles 18.1. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. So Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, was given in marriage to Ahab's daughter, 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 18. So when Jehoshaphat comes to Ahab, Ahab seeks Jehoshaphat's help in going to war, verse 4. And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to the battle of Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat is supportive of the idea, and to verse 4, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So all of my resources are dedicated to this endeavor. Yes, I will go to war with you. But first, Joseph wants to seek the Lord's will in this matter. Verse 5. And Joseph had said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. So this is all subject to God's will. If this is what God wants, I'm with you. If this is not what God wants, I'm not with you. So Ahab assembles a group of prophets in verse 6. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. Now, it's important to keep in mind that these prophets are prophets that do not uh, 
worship the true and living God. They were serving Ahab. They are referred to as his, that is Ahab's prophets, in 1 Kings 22.22. Thus they were a part of Ahab's corrupted, synchristic worship, which combined the worship of Jehovah God with other gods. Uh, So they were not reliable prophets at all. Uh, They were not true prophets of God. They counseled Ahab to go to war and said that he would be victorious. Verse 6. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Now here's the instruction, Go up, for the Lord will give you it into the hand of the king. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king, referring to the Syrians are going to become servants of Ahab. Jehoshaphat, for whatever reason, recognizes that these prophets that he is hearing do not represent the true and living God. So in verse 7, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? It is not simply that he's asking for the 401st prophet. He's not just simply asking for another opinion, but rather he wants a specific prophet. He wants a prophet that is going to be speaking for God, not these prophets that are on hire for Ahab. Ahab responds that there is one person who speaks for the Lord, but Ahab can't stand him. Verse 8, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. I hate him. And the reason that Ahab hates Micaiah is that Micaiah always condemns Ahab. End of verse 8, But I hate him for He never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. We should not miss the fact that Ahab blames Micaiah, not Ahab's own conduct, as the reason for Micaiah's negative prophecies concerning Ahab. In essence, he's saying, he doesn't like me. (laughs) But in reality, of course, uh, what Micaiah is constantly doing is condemning the sin of Ahab. For Ahab, it's a personal matter. It's just simply that this prophet doesn't like me. And just as earlier, Ahab referred to Elijah as his enemy, 1 Kings 21.20, Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? This is indication that the true prophets of God that are speaking for God, Ahab rejects and views them as his enemies rather than a helper or or rather ministering to, to him but sees them as adversaries because they're always condemning him. This is another indication that Ahab's remorse that we saw last week was not a genuine and true conversion, for he hates the prophets of God and doesn't want to follow what God has said. Ahab does not welcome God's word or appreciate God's prophets that condemn Ahab's sinfulness. Evidently, Ahab had a number of encounters with Micaiah, none of which were favorable, for it tells us in verse 8, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. So they must have had some kind of ongoing relationship. However, we do not know anything else about Micaiah as far as the word of God is concerned. This is the only account that tells us 
about Micaiah. Jehoshaphat tries to rid Ahab of a negative attitude towards Micaiah, end of verse 8. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. So Ahab sends for Micaiah, verse 9. Then the king of Israel summoned the officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. Now our attention is drawn to what happens when Micaiah arrives on the scene. First, the kings are all decked out in their royal attire, verse 10. Now the kings of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes of the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. So they are sitting there in all their pomp and circumstance and uh, in their regalia, place of authority. The 400 prophets have all begun to prophesy. End of verse 10. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Zedekiah is the ringleader and claims to be speaking for God. Verse 11. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord. So he is representing himself as speaking for Jehovah God, the true and living God of Israel. With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. All the 400 prophets are on board and say the same thing, verse 12. And all the prophets prophesied and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now Ahab's representative tells Micaiah what Micaiah better say. Verse 13. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of the one of them and speak favorably. So the messenger takes Micaiah aside before he goes in to see the king and says, let me tell you what you, you need to say. Everybody is on board with the king going up and the king triumphing. That's what you need to say also. However, Micaiah being the true prophet that he is, is only going to speak what God has given him to speak. Verse 14. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. So now he goes in before Ahab, and Ahab puts the question to Micah, verse 15, and uh, Micaiah. And when he had come to the king, the king said to Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we re refrain? The, Micaiah, the answer that Micaiah gives is, is that he should go up and he will be victorious. End of verse 15. He answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, I've been going quickly. Let me just slow down from here on and say, first of all, there are a number of curious things about Micaiah's answer. The first is, the question is, should we go up? Plural. And the answer is directed to Ahab, singular. You shall go up. But it's a singular you in the Hebrew. The second is that Micaiah answers favorably and says that Ahab is to go up to battle and he will be successful. What are we to think about that? Well, Micaiah is not selling out at this point. He's not giving in to the pressure of uh, the messenger or Ahab. Uh, you know, one of the difficulties in reading the scripture is you can't read tone. You can't read inflection. You only see the words that are before you. But it appears that Micaiah said this in an extremely sarcastic manner. For it is obvious that Ahab knows 
The Micaiah does not mean what he says, verse 16. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So when he says, Go up and you will triumph, he says it in such a way that Ahab picks up and says, All right, all right, all right. Just tell me the truth. Tell me what God says. A key factor here is that Ahab says that he wants the truth. However, he obviously does not want the truth, and that is the reason for Micaiah's sarcasm. Ahab has not wanted the truth in the past. Ahab had not asked for Micaiah initially. He was relying on his 400 prophets. It was Jehoshaphat that actually urged Ahab to consult with Micaiah, and Ahab will not follow through on what Micaiah says. So it's a sham that Ahab wants the truth. Like the famous line from the movie, you can't handle the truth. So Micaiah now tells Ahab the true message of the Lord, verse 17. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. The point is that Ahab will lose his life in the battle and Israel will be defeated and scattered. Ahab's response is that he says to Jehoshaphat, I told you so, verse 18, did not I tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Now, Micaiah explains why his answer is different from all the rest. So that the king might understand what is true. And this is a very important section for us. God is working against Ahab, not for Ahab. God is not on Ahab's side. Verses 19 to 21. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, all the host of heaven standing beside him on the right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. God grants permission to the spirit to deceive Ahab, verse 22. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed, go out and do so. Now this might be troubling to us at first glance. However, there are some things that we need to keep in mind. The first is that Ahab does not want the truth of God. He has established for himself these false prophets who claim to speak for God and don't, and Ahab is completely satisfied with them. He doesn't really want to hear what God has to say. Secondly, it is the spirit who volunteers to lie. God does not instill within this spirit a desire to lie. This is an evil spirit who is doing what this evil spirit loves to do. Verse 22, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Thirdly, and what is most significant, is that we are to see that God is in control of the situation. 
God is sovereign. He is over all things. He is over the godly spirits. He's also over the demonic world. And this passage is similar to God's having chosen Judas to be a disciple, knowing full well that Judas will betray him. In Luke chapter 6, it reads, Simon Peter answered him, that's Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter is speaking for the other 11 disciples. And he says, we have believed and we have come to know that you are the living and true God. Jesus answered them, did not I choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? So he corrects them. You haven't all believed. Uh, he says right up front, I have chosen you 12, and one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. That's Luke 6, 71. Furthermore, just prior to when Judas does betray Jesus, at the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives permission to Judas to go out and betray him. In John chapter 13, verse 21, it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say unto you, one of you will betray me. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, that's Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. Which was to betray Jesus. The point is that Jesus was in control of the situation. Judas was actually accomplishing God's purpose, God's will. Judas was not intent on accomplishing God's purpose or will. Uh, he was going to betray Jesus. But in God's sovereignty, this was a part of God's plan. But Judas was still accountable. The Pharisees were still accountable. For they were not seeking to do what God desired. They were seeking to act against God. This is God's judgment at work. God is able to bring about his purpose, his will. All participants are responsible for their own actions. Back to the text. Note the explanation that Micaiah supplies for Ahab, verse 23. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. God candidly tells Ahab exactly what is taking place. God is not being deceptive here, for God tells Ahab exactly what is happening. Why these false prophets are declaring what they declare. Ahab wants to hear lies. God says, you want to hear lies? I will give you lies. Note the text states, your prophets, 
as opposed to the prophets of the Lord, verse 23. Ahab's prophets are doing what Ahab wants them to do, namely, tell him what he wants to hear. But God also reveals the truth. You don't want the truth, but I will give you the truth anyway. God does not withhold the truth from Ahab. Verse 23, the Lord has declared disaster for you. Let me just stop here and and make the first application. And that is, the lying prophets are all a part of God's judgment. The scary thing is that God gives people exactly what they want. If they want false teachers, God will give them false teachers. In 2 Timothy, there's this famous passage on preaching the word of God. And it says, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the word of God says that there will be a time in which people don't want to hear the truth and they will accumulate for themselves. They will gather together for themselves people that are going to teach what they want to hear. And that situation abounds. This is precisely what Ahab had done. He had heaped to himself false prophets, 400 of them. And when people turn away from the truth of God's word, God will give them preachers who do not preach the word, but rather what the people want to hear. We need to be careful that we do not seek to dictate to preachers what we are willing to hear and what we are willing to listen to, what doctrines we will tolerate and what doctrines we will not tolerate. We need to be subservient to the word of God and not look for people who are telling us what we want to hear. That's the first step to real corruption. God's word is God's word whether we like it or not. And God's word is truth, and we shouldn't take it personally when we find out that what our beliefs or our practice was run contrary to the word of God, but we should be submissive to the word of God. So we look at the responses to Micaiah's word. Zedekiah responds by accusing Micaiah of lying, verses 24 and 25. Ahab's response is that Ahab is angered and takes it out on Micaiah, verse 26. And the king of Israel said, seize him. And take him back to Amnon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the Lord, put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. Micaiah's response, and Micaiah said in verse 28, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. Uh, That's not going to happen, king. You're not coming back. Ahab goes to battle anyway, despite what Micaiah has to say. 
verse 29. So the king of Israel and Josaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. However, Ahab is worried enough that he takes some precautions. He doesn't really believe, but at the same point, he's uncomfortable with what is said. So he's going to take some precautions. Ahab will dress like a common soldier so he's not recognized as the king of Israel, verse 30. And the king of Israel said to Joseph, I will disguise myself and go into battle. So he's not going to dress like a king. He's not going to have a crown. He's not going to have robes. He's going to look like a Joe Schmo uh, infantry guy. Jehoshaphat is to dress like a king, verse 30. But you wear your robes. Verse 30, and the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now, humanly speaking, why Jehoshaphat is going to go along with this plan, I don't have a clue. You know, I'm not going to risk my life. You risk your life. I'm not going to dress like a king. You, you dress like a king so you look like me, and uh, everybody will think that, that, that you're me and they'll kill you instead of me. Why he goes along with that, I, I don't have a clue. Okay? Here is God's sovereignty. I, I, I don't know what was in his mind. Josephat is setting himself up to be a sitting duck. However, the king of Syria gives strict orders that it is only Ahab that he wants to kill. Verse 31. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots fight with neither small nor great. So don't worry about all these other people. Focus on Ahab. When the Syrian soldiers see Jehoshaphat in his kingly attire, they assume that he's the king of Israel and pursue him. Verse 32. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. Well, Jehoshaphat cries out, I'm not the king of Israel. When they realized that Jehoshaphat was not the king of Israel, they let him go. Verse 33. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. God spared the life of Jehoshaphat through ordinary means. That is dressed in the unusual. That is, the king of Syria would not want to take the life of Jehoshaphat when Jehoshaphat enters into a war against Syria is unusual. This is a king that was in alliance with Ahab. Why wouldn't the king of Syria want to take the life of the other king that was fighting against him? That's unusual. That the captains would spare the life of Jehoshaphat when they had him easily in their sights is unusual. That they are going to follow this strict order that says don't fight with anyone, small or great. You can't get any greater than the second in command, the king of Judah. And yet, they let him go. That's unusual. God spares the life of Jehoshaphat, who acted very, very foolishly. That is unusual. Usually people who make foolish decisions find themselves in a bad state. 
What I'm saying to you this morning is, application number one, Jehoshaphat was not just incredibly lucky. Jehoshaphat was spared by the providential working of God. God was behind this. This wasn't just a set of circumstances that turns out in this really incredibly unusual way of which Jehoshaphat was really lucky. No, he was providentially spared. Now we see Ahab's defeat is in keeping with the word of God. We are introduced to Joshmo's soldier who is bored and just shoots at anything. Verse 34. But a certain man drew his bow at random. All right? Just as a lark. He's bored. <laughs> you know, uh, he's out there. He's supposed to be fighting. And so he just shoots an arrow into the sky. Lo and behold, what happens? Where does it land? Verse 34. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel. Didn't aim. Was not purposeful. Just happened to hit the king of, of Israel. And not only did he just happen to hit the king of Israel, he hit him in the one vulnerable spot that would take his life, verse 34. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. So there's this crack between the armor where the breastplate fits so that he's got like you know, a, an armored jacket on a bulletproof vest. He's got an arrow-proof vest that just happens to have a little crack in it where the two places come together. Lo and behold, doesn't that arrow that just happened to hit the king just happen to land in that crack that will produce a fatal blow. It would have required an incredible marksmanship to pull that off. But there was no marksmanship involved whatsoever. So the king died. Verse 35, and the battle continued that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. When the king dies, the army scatters and goes home, verse 36. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city, every man to his country. But we are to realize that Ahab did not just run into a string of incredibly bad luck, but God providentially brought about the destruction of Ahab. Everything that God had said came to pass, verse 37 and 38. So the king died, was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. 
everything that God said happened. This isn't a story of luck. This is a story of God's providence and how God's providence works. And what appear to be just ordinary circumstances of human decisions, we find are governed, controlled by the invisible hand of an almighty, all-powerful God. So what are the takeaways for us? Well, first of all, Ahab did not heed the repeating warnings that God had given Ahab. It's a dreadful thing when people reject the repeated warnings of God. Rather than appreciating the word, he rejected the word. And he opposed those that would teach the word in truth. People, it's always, always dangerous ground to reject the truth of God's word. Micaiah was faithful to the word even when it was unpopular and even when it was risky for him to do so. He ended up in prison. He ended up with meager rations as a result of being faithful to God. We should be faithful to God's word no matter what the outcome will be. God's word was fulfilled in one at the same time in common and yet remarkable ways. Common for they were normal courses of events. This was a battle. This was a war. There were chariots. There were arrows flying. This is what happens. They were common events. However, they were at the same time remarkable. For, again, the king Ahab was not in the sight of the marksman who just happened to shoot an arrow in the air. He did not take aim. It just happened to land at the exact right spot. We ought to find remarkable what we often chalk up as coincidence or good luck or bad luck. May we learn to see the invisible. May we learn to look for the invisible hand of God that directs and oversees the circumstances in our lives. And see how God remarkably provides for us in the mundane. And also chides us in the mundane, in the everyday circumstances of life that are more than just the everyday circumstances of life, for they are under the control of a sovereign God. God's word was fulfilled despite Ahab's objections and schemes against it. Ahab believed enough that he was willing to enter into a disguise, <laughs> but the disguise was going to be no protection. There is no protection against God's judgment. If we think that by our conniving, that we can hide our sin. And if we think that we can pull it over the eyes of others, and, and maybe we can, maybe we can fool other people. None of the Syrian army recognized Ahab. They didn't need to. God recognized Ahab. God knew where he was. 
God knew what chariot he was in. He was not hiding from God. May we learn that, yes, we may hide our sins from others, but we cannot hide our sin from God. In a world in which God is sovereign, there are no random events. Life does not consist of good and bad luck. Ahab wasn't just unlucky, and Josephat wasn't just incredibly lucky. We are in a world governed by God's providence. So too, our lives are under God's control. We are not just lucky and unlucky. And then we have this summary statement of Ahab's life, verse 39. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? That verse is not just a throwaway verse. Why is it there? Why is it there? I submit to you because we would think that that is the real important areas of Ahab's life to consider. The ivory house that he built, the cities that he had built, these were his accomplishments. These are his successes. I remember when I was at, at Kutztown, I, uh, university, I had a, uh, a course in ancient history. And uh, the person who taught the course made it very clear that he did not value the scriptures and did not view them as a good source of history. And, and one of the reasons that he gave was that in the Bible, King Omri gets such small shrift, hardly anything is said about King Omri, and yet he was one of the most important kings in the nation of Israel when you look at it from the point of human success and accomplishments. The whole point is that the Bible looks at things far differently than we do. What's the most important thing for us to know is not how rich Ahab was, not how many cities he built, and not the house that he had of ivory, but that he was a person who rejected the word of God, and it was his downfall. That's the most important thing to know. He rejected the word of God, and it was his downfall. May we learn that the most important element of our lives is that we receive the word of God as the truth of God's word and seek to bring ourselves into conformity with that word. We're to learn what's really important in life. Not be deceived, but understand the truth and do the will of God. Submit to him. And I would say to you this morning, if you have never accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, and you have heard time and time and time and time and time again the warnings of Scripture, don't reject the truth of God's word.
I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Let us pray. Almighty God, help us to be people who respond to your truth. May we first be a people who want the truth, who seek the truth. And we know that your word is truth. So as we make decisions in life, as we order our way, may we not seek counsel of the ungodly, but may we seek your word. May we seek your truth. May we realize that there is so much that comes into our life that is not true, that is not real, that is not in conformity with your word. Help us to be a people who want truth. Help us to be a people who will submit ourselves to your truth. And if it goes against our desires, if it goes against what we like, that we just won't close our ears to it, that we won't look for somebody who tells us what we like to hear and what we want to hear. But we'll be like the Bereans to search the scriptures to see if these things are true. And when we find that indeed that's what the word of God teaches, Lord, help us to be a people who will conform our thoughts, our desires, to what your word teaches. May we be a people who will repent. May we be a people who will believe. May we be a people who will escape condemnation by yielding ourselves to the truth of your word. Lord, we are thankful this morning that our, hand, our lives are in your hands, that you are a God who rules over all, including the evil one. Satan cannot do anything that you do not permit him to do. Lord, help us, help us to rid our hearts and minds of this concept of being unlucky or being lucky. Lord, help us to see a sovereign hand in the circumstances of our lives. May it, first of all, drive us to you, to bring before you the smallest details of our lives, seeking your wisdom, seeking your help, imploring that you would lead and direct, that you would accomplish your will and your purpose. Oh Lord, when things go well, may we be a people who are quick to give praise to you, knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Lord, may we not take for granted the small facets of our lives that bring us great joy. And may we ascribe it to you and your goodness. And Lord, in times of hardship, may we understand them under the hand of a sovereign God. And there are so many different reasons for events and circumstances to happen in our lives. Uh, we certainly can't go into all that this morning, but Lord, we, we pray that you would reassure us. And we seek your will and we would search the scriptures to try to ascertain what is going on. And uh, Lord, uh, help us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials and difficulties, knowing that they work patience, they work experience, they work hope. Lord, help us to see you in all things, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.